Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious Father, we ask once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated if you would. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, looking at one verse, one line in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, or parts of 7, part of 8. If you got here a little bit late, I'd like to remind you uh, we've been led in worship here by Barrett Hendrickson. He's one of our missionaries, and we'll get to hear a little bit more about their ministry and their work in a little bit. It's been a great pleasure to have Barrett lead us. Thank you for that during that time. About uh, 35 years ago, uh, when I was in my early 20s, the Lord called me to follow after him. I was uh, immediately taken by the vision of godliness that the scriptures put forward, that there would be a possibility, that there would come a time, that there would be work done shaping, molding in my life, that the Holy Spirit would so fashion my life in such a way that I would no longer be the victim of my sin, that I would no longer be entrapped by the brokenness that was a part of my life. Even there early on, I was well aware that my sinful attitudes, my sinful actions, certainly my sinful words in such a way separated me from my fellow human beings, uh, my family, and absolutely separated me from my Lord. I was caught by this idea that there would be change that takes place in my life, that I would no longer suffer such despair because of the result of my sin. 35 some odd years later, I can tell you with great joy that the Lord has worked wonders in my life. Uh, Through the work of the Holy Spirit, he has shaped and molded me and fashioned me in ways that are exactly what the scriptures proclaim should happen to a believer, that there should be that kind of transformation that take place. And it's a beautiful thing. It has been a great joy to me to experience that. And when I look back on my life and I look at some of the ways in which the Lord has changed me, it brings great joy to my heart. Unfortunately, that's offset occasionally by the continual emergence of the brokenness in my life. Sin remains a drag upon my relationships. My attitudes continue to reflect and my thoughts continue to reflect an ungodliness that I know is not what God desires for me. There is so much in my life that still is not pleasing to him, satisfying to me. It's a continual uh, expression, almost of frustration, for me to continue to live my life in the brokenness and sin that is present here. If you have ever been discouraged by your sin, by the persistence of that, if in your intimate relationships and in those who are closest to you or in your work or in the quietness of your own mind, you ever catch yourself and you realize that what you are thinking is not pleasing to your Lord, then this passage, I believe, speaks to us. 
and helps direct us. This is exactly why Paul provided this line in the scripture for us. I think to encourage those who are discouraged after seeking so faithfully to be free from sin, just what we have just been singing about. Lord, we're free, we're free, we absolutely are. And yet that brokenness hangs on and shows itself in so many wrong and bad ways. If you've ever been frustrated by that, then I think that this passage speaks directly to us and helps guides us in the encouragement that the scriptures would have for all of us who have that vision of godliness, that vision of living a noble, godly character, and realize that even now, 35 years after walking with Christ, I still fall so far short of that vision. How do you keep, how do you prevent from becoming discouraged, dismayed, um, just wanting to forget it all and just say this stuff isn't worth even trying anymore? Well, Paul's response to that is to tell us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And uh, I believe that communion, if it's not in Paul's mind in the background here, at least the whole notion of, of communion, the Lord's Supper, what we're going to do together, is built upon the same premise. It holds the same ideas that led Paul to write this line for us. So as I walk through this line, as we work our way through this passage together, I want you to note not simply what this passage says to us about what we are hearing but also, and this is a great joy of doing communion together, about what we're going to experience, a tangible expression of what we read about here. So as we look through this text and we see these things, we are capturing a vision, not just of what this passage says, not just to help us in our discouragement with our sin, but specifically because that's what this table is for as well. This table is to help us in our discouragement with our sin. Now, what happens at the Lord's Supper is huge. We could talk about it for months and months together. We're not going to, but we certainly could talk specifically just about this table. But one piece of it is to look to those of us who are discouraged with our sin and speak to us along the same lines that Paul does here in this line when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival. And I believe what Paul does here in the midst of a discouraging situation is reorient or to focus the reader's attention on three things, the past, the present, and the future. And each one of those steps, the past, the present, and the future, the way Paul articulates this, is intended to spur us on, not to fall into dismay, not to fall into discouragement over our sin. But how do we handle that? How do we understand ourselves? If Christ has done this amazing thing, if he is well worth worshiping, if he is everything we have just sung about, and if he has done all that work for us, why is it that I continue to live a life that is anything short of that beauty mark 
that the Lord has for us in the scriptures? Well, orient ourselves to the past, to the present, and to the future. First in the past, the text begins for Christ. And, and by the way, uh, if it's, uh, yeah, okay, the, the verse actually begins with the words for, which orients us to Paul's argument up until this point. The Corinthian church had fallen into a completely ugly sin, something that is just revolting. Uh, not the, if you read the earlier parts of the chapter, the first six verses, you'll realize right away what it is that they've fallen into. And the, the frustration is not in the, uh, the sexual allegations and the sexual misconduct that's happening in the church. It's how the church is responding to that. And it responds so inappropriately, so wrong. And Paul is discouraged and he's encouraging the Corinthian church don't, get, don't fall into despair over this sin. Rather, and then this is kind of the culmination of his argument, this is what he wants to say, don't fall into despair over your sin, rather remember this, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So we're talking about Christ and then a description of Christ. So we're talking about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, and then a description, our Passover lamb. Um, first off, I love the hour. It's collective, it's all of ours, but it's possessive. There is something that's reiterated over and over again in the scriptures that I just like. We are allowed to claim possession of our God. He wants us to talk like that. He wants us to realize that, that he has claimed us, that we are his people but then also that we have claim, we can grasp, we can say, this is my God, this is our God. And that kind of captures a little bit And when Paul writes here, Christ, our Passover lamb. Now, the, he doesn't say our creator. Christ doesn't say our lover. Christ doesn't say the one who has given himself for it. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb. And in referencing and referring to Christ as our Passover lamb, he takes us back to that seminal moment in Israelite history, the Passover, the exodus out of Egypt. While the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt, God brought about plagues, and one of the plagues was the plague of the firstborn. It was where God was exacting his righteous penalty upon all peoples, saying, because of your guilt and your sin, you have lost the right to live. Your firstborn has lost the right to live because of your guilt and your sin. Except for his people, he has provided the Passover lamb. He provided a substitute for that. No longer would they give up their own lives because of their sin, but rather they would offer a substitute, a lamb whose blood would be shed, and because of the lamb's blood, they would be freed. They would not have to pay that penalty themselves. Now, if you go back and you look at Exodus 12, and I encourage you to do so, there's a description of the Passover lamb. This is what the Passover lamb is supposed to be, right, be like. And if you read that description with Jesus Christ in mind, it is clear how Paul makes that parallel, why he makes that parallel, and claims that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that image, that seminal action, that central motif in the Old Testament in Israelites' history where 
their sin, Israel's sin, has been passed over. I want to take a step and just comment on something. For those of us who get discouraged, who get frustrated by our sin, realize this, that God has passed over your sin. And if God has passed over your sin, how overwhelmingly arrogant must you be not to allow him to do so? God has looked into your life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and he has, through the blood of Jesus Christ, paid for your sin so that he might pass you over, so that he would not exact his penalty, his justice, his wrath upon you, but rather he has already exercised that upon Jesus Christ. How wrong is it possibly for you to hold on to the guilt of your sin and to feel that shame and to feel that weight and to feel that separation from the Lord when it is God himself who has passed it over? And if God has passed over the guilt and the sin of your brother and sister in Christ, a guilt and a sin that separated them from God himself, if he has passed over that sin, how, my friend, can you possibly hold that sin against them? How can you not pass it over if your God has passed it over? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is that past tense orientation. This is that shift that when Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, look, you're discouraged that you are still caught. How can you still be caught in the power and the grip of sin? Remember this, and he says, orient you to the past. Christ has been sacrificed. This is a past tense action. This is something that has already happened, and because it has already occurred, Paul says, therefore, there is no room for you to be discouraged. There's no rule. There's no spot for you to be dismayed. Why? Because the past has happened. Christ has acted on your behalf. It is impossible for what Christ to have done 2,000 years ago, not to, for him suddenly to pull the rug out from underneath you and to say, well, because of your sin, forget what happened 2,000 years ago. It has been accomplished. What Christ has done 2,000 years ago affects us today. And so Paul is able to say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The, the word there is is. Uh, the action is completed, it's finished, it's done. It's once action that is all over with. Christ need not shed his blood again for you. It has happened. It is finished. When you are discouraged over the constant presence of your sin, what Paul is saying here is, Open your eyes to the reality of the sin. Yes, indeed, be aware of that. Be conscious of the fact that it separates you from the Father. Absolutely. But know this. It has been paid for. 
the encouragement that Paul is trying to say here is that when you are confronted by the depravity that still holds on, when you are not yet that person that God desires you to be, remember this, he has already done the job. He has already accomplished the task. There is supposed to be something that is motivating There's supposed to be something that is encouraging. There's supposed to be something that moves us forward when we hear those words, when we understand it in that format, that it has been paid for. The past. Paul says, when you're discouraged by your sin, remember what Christ has done. In my own personal experience, I have to say that that's an overwhelming thing for me. When, When I exhibit my bad behavior, when my mind goes in places that I know that it shouldn't, when the Lord brings that conviction into my heart that says, Henry, you shouldn't have that thought, you shouldn't have that attitude, you shouldn't talk that way, nothing. There's no, this isn't a self-help moment. It's not where I say, buck up, Hank, got to do better. It is an idea consistently where I turn to the Lord and I remember that which he has done on the cross. That's why we are told that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, the past, the present. Therefore, let us celebrate. The therefore is connected to the previous line. Because of what Christ has done, because of what he did in the past, that therefore has an effect upon us in the present. Therefore, let us celebrate. Every time you go into any situation, you go to a party with your family, you go into a, um, a uh, uh, why can't I think of the word movie theater? How hard was that? Uh, when you go into a movie theater, when you go into any setting as a believer, you bring something that nobody else there has but other Christians. You come with the joy of the Lord. Not because you're bubbly and happy and excited, not because you're showing it at all moments, but because that comes automatically to those who follow and claim the name of Jesus Christ. When Christ grabs a hold of your life, he brings the joy of his presence into your life if you acknowledge it, if you live it out, if you embrace it, or if you completely ignore it and completely forget it. And so what Paul says here is because of the past work of Jesus Christ in the present, celebrate, experience that joy. Now, this is not a personality thing. There are some people in this room that are just going to always be a little bubbly. There are some of us that are just always going to be a little grumpy. That, that, this is not a, a, a personality test. This is a recognition. Here's the, here's the way to test this. Have you ever been to a funeral? where there has been joy present, certainly there's sorrow, certainly there's sadness, a loss of a loved one. But because the community knows where that loved one is and they are held powerfully by their Lord, even in the midst of the sorrow and the sadness, there is a joy, a celebration present. And what Paul is saying here is in the midst of your discouragement over sin, celebrate. What are we possibly celebrating? 
because we are living out. I like the way that Barrett closed our time of confession today. He said, you are forgiven or uh, 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 be free. I forget how he phrased it exactly. But then, and live that way. We are to live according to the realities of who we are. And who are we? We are brothers and sisters who embrace the experience of joy and celebration. That's part of who we are. It doesn't mean that you never have a bad day. It doesn't mean that you're never unhappy. It doesn't, what it means is that we are consistently people of joy, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, past tense. Therefore, let us celebrate, present tense, the festival. Now, when Paul talks about celebrating the festival here, immediately in mind, he has in mind the Passover festival that would have connected past to what the Israelites performed. It was the way in which they celebrated and remembered what God had done in, the, in Egypt, Egyptian captivity, freeing them from that. And it was an experience of joy for all of the people to gather together to have a big festival. But there are seven major festivals in the Old Testament, and every single one of them both remember what God has done in expressing his faithfulness to the Israelites in the past, but specifically they point forward to a future celebration, a future feast, a future festival where God's people would be in the presence of God continuously now and forevermore. That's what all of those Old Testament festivals were intended to point to. They were pointing past the past, past the present. They were pointing to the future. And in the future, what they are saying is, remember, there will be a time where we are consistently in the presence of God, and it will be a feast. It will be a festival it will be glorious because our God is present here. What Paul is saying to all those who are discouraged by their sin is yes, it's frustrating. Yes, we want that to we want to experience the freedom that we sing about, the freedom that Christ has bought for us upon the cross. How do we keep from becoming discouraged in the past? Remember that which Christ has done, it is finished. In the presence, experience the joy, celebrate like we should celebrate, and remember our future is held by God, and that includes that spot where every one of us, followers of Jesus Christ, will find ourselves standing before God, worshiping and praising him. That undercuts, removes that inspires so that we no longer have that discouragement, that dissatisfaction with our brokenness and our sin. It puts it in perspective. And that's exactly what the text does, but it's also exactly what we celebrate when we come to the table. In preparation for that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask for your presence here with us as we come to the table as we celebrate the blessings that you have given to us here, as we have heard your word, and now we experience the joy of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.